I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Nina Stepman. And I'm Josh Hammer. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, well, we've got four very diverse and compelling segments to go through today. First, Emily's going to open it up with a segment on the left's lack of tolerance for understanding of religious liberty. I'll talk a little bit about the left's commitment and devotion to injustice. And as we'll talk about dangerous new Title IX regulations. And last but not least, Josh will take us home by talking about Joe Biden's sure to be ill-fated visit to and with Saudi Arabia. So with that, let's kick it over to Emily. All right. So the it's that time of year. We've been talking a lot about the Dobbs case and about Roe, but uh, this week a decision was uh brought forth was was rendered um, in the case of Carson v. Macon. I think that's how you pronounce it, or the Macon or Macon, M-A-K-I-N. A lot of listeners have probably heard about that decision so far, but I think what's most interesting, actually, as Tim Carney points out, is the dissent. As Tim wrote, the liberal minority on the Supreme Court showed its dedication Tuesday to religious discrimination. In an angry dissent in the case, the three liberal justices chastised the majority for striking down a law that explicitly discriminated against religious institutions. So there's a lot of negatives there. He's saying the liberal justices chastised the majority for striking down a law that was explicitly discriminatory against religious institutions. Um, and, And Tim writes, this is important. This is laughable in an era which progressivism has effectively taken the status of a religion. (laughs) Um, Liberal counties and cities aren't even pretending to be value neutral anymore. They're explicitly using public schools to advance their religion. So I think even even more interesting than uh, the majority opinion in this case, which obviously struck down this, this clearly clearly discriminatory law is the dissent. Um, And we have lawyers here um, that don't include Ben, as I I misidentified him as a lawyer on a recent edition of Federalist Radio Hour. But unfortunately, we have two other lawyers here in the form of of Josh and Inez, who can probably weigh in on the the legal merits. But I do think it's worth saying, um, and, and Tim points this out repeatedly in the Washington Examiner, that it is insane um, to interpret the Constitution in the way that the liberal justices are. Um, it, it's, it's completely ridiculous because this is not establishing any form of state religion. It's merely saying that um, schools, and Inez, actually, you probably are, are up on this because you've, you've done a lot of work in this space. Um, schools can have religious affini- affiliations. They don't have to have any particular religious affiliation. This is not about Christianity or Judaism or Islam. This is about schools that get public funding, um, having just any ability to identify with a religious affiliation. So to interpret the constitution in a way um, that just in- basically shoves religion out of public life is bizarre and I think a very telling uh, a very telling I guess indication of where we are as a country and I'll, I'll, I'll add one open question that maybe everybody will ignore or maybe people will have thoughts on um, about how we're organizing our conversation or, or our policy direction um, sort of in the new right space about uh, religious freedom about religious liberty um, about what Patrick Deneen has has written on um, going forward when it comes to the role of religion in the school. Um, and, and so maybe there are additional thoughts to, to bring in on this. Maybe somebody has a contrarian uh, take, but with that, I'll, I'll toss it open to the group. What on earth does it say about the country that the liberal justices were so upset um, about the majority opinion here? Um, well, I can give the background here on on this uh, actual program, right? So, so Maine has, the, along with one other state, they actually have these very old programs or tuitioning programs. They go back more than a hundred years. We think of school choice programs as sort of a, a modern iteration, and the first modern one was passed in the 1990s. But um, these are, these are much much older than that, and that's because the state of Maine is super super rural. And so, what often happens is that there is not enough. Um, there aren't enough kids in a given town to support a public school. And so what they they have been doing is giving tuition grants to kids 
um, from rural towns if you qualify in one of these towns. And they've been doing it um, for, for well over 100 years. However, uh, in, in more recently, in the 70s, um, they passed a law saying that you could only choose a secular school. Right, so they edited that law, that initial tuitioning program that initially you were allowed to go to any school, including a school attached to a church um, or, or any house of, of faith. Um, and so they actually changed that whole system to exclude, as, as Emily says, discriminate against um, religious institutions, right? So uh, that's what's at stake here. There's been a lot of really bad reporting about this. I've seen um, headlines that say that they struck down a school choice program. That's obviously not true. That it's, it's they're not. I've seen other headlines saying they now they have to have a school choice program. That's also not true. Um, it, all this decision says is that if a state decides to open up a school choice program, or for example, any other government program where they're doling out benefits, they cannot discriminate against religious institutions. They have the same footing as anyone else to apply for it. In this case, they can't tell parents that they can't choose a religious school. If they're saying, choose from any school you want, but only the ones that aren't attached to a, um, a faith. So that, that's what's going on here. I just have, have two um, little sort of bullet points, and I'm sure Josh will dig into both of these, but. Um, one, I, I, to, to pick up on your point, Emily, about uh, the, the sort of conception of religious liberty, um, I think that's the way we're, we've been thinking about a lot of our rights as kind of islands in a sea of, um, a sea of liberalism, of cultural liberalism, um, and that's obviously not a sustainable solution going forward, right? Um, there, that doesn't necessarily or doesn't necessitate any particular um, sort of uh, policy or change but it does uh, mean that we, we need to start conceptualizing these things. You can't just like sit in your Benedict Option Island on any of this stuff, right? Um, the, the, the waters will swamp the island eventually. Um, and then that's, that, that has implications for how we think about religious liberty versus like a public commitment to faith or, or some kind of providence or God, right? And, and that's very much a modern post-60s thing that we think about it that way. That was not the tradition of America and, and the concept of religious liberty in America going back. Um, and the second thing is, there, there's a very sharp tension, and you pointed to this, Emily, between the definitions of what a religion actually is in the Establishment Clause versus the Free Exercise Clause, right? So we have all these decisions, mostly from the 60s, for example, draft dodgers, right, saying that they're, and, and they're the definition of, of religion is very, um, it's very expansive, right? It could be just deeply held commitments. It could be a worldview, right? So um, that obviously something like wokeism would, would, actually probably qualify um, as a religion underneath some of these, for example, cases about whether or not you can get an exemption from the draft. On the other hand, when you move over to the, the establishment clause, right, um, there the definition of religion is narrow, uh, that would exclude any kind of worldview or, or um, anything that is not kind of an organized religion is actually excluded um, from the definition of religion under the establishment clause, which makes the establishment clause quite broad, right? Um, and the, the free exercise quite narrow in a certain sense. Um, anyway, so so there's a tension there and there has been a tension for decades in, in Supreme Court precedent. And it's like not a tension that anyone seems interested in resolving, but uh, with that, I'll, I'll kick it out to, uh, to Josh and Ben. All right, so a lot to say, not a whole lot of time. So maybe we'll come back to this in closing thoughts because this is a really rich area. So obviously a good decision. Um, it, it is a remarkably straightforward application of two very recent precedents, the Trinity Lutheran case of 2017 and the Espinoza case of 2020. Really, a lot of these cases go back to the history of so-called Blaine Amendments, which take their name from a, a Republican congressman from the late 19th century named Blaine, who himself was a pretty avowed anti-Catholic bigot. And he basically tried to propose um, not just a U.S. constitutional amendment, but he then subsequently tried to shepherd through state constitutions amendment that would effectively prohibit public funds towards going to the direct subsidization of private um, religious education. So there's a very straightforward decision. Um, so, so good for that. On the Establishment Clause issue, so I'm actually working on a long essay right now with, uh, with someone who, who will be very familiar to those who follow the NACON orbit closely, that basically argues that the entire edifice of so-called separation of church and state is a lie. So to kind of go back to first principles, 
separation of church and state goes back to this 1802 letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury, Connecticut Baptist Convention. Thomas Jefferson, of course, was not even there when the Constitution was ratified. This letter is 231 words. It is not exactly a, a prolific piece of, of scholarly discourse. The court did not actually read that phrase of separationism into the constitutional fabric until a case called Everson in 1947, 145 years after Jefferson's letter. So, you know, now that we're approaching the end of Roe versus Wade, and I'll cut myself off here to make sure Ben gets some time in, I think a case like Everson is really looking like a big case to target. Yeah, so I'll, I'll be brief here. First of all, also going back to first principles, the founding fathers, even those who were not the most religious, were avid promoters of faith in America. They did not believe in having a theocracy in America. They, of course, believed in religious pluralism, but they also didn't believe in promoting an anti-faith like progressivism. And for these judges, in their opinions, like, for example, the senators themselves who have tried to slap religious tests on judges to come before them, the dogma, dogma lives loudly within them. And that dogma is the dogma of progressivism, which brooks no dissent and cannot tolerate any competing belief systems, faiths as a counterpart to its anti-faith. So I think this is perfectly consistent with progressive ideology. I'm glad that a blow was struck here for religion in America and promotion of religious liberty and pluralism in America. The state religion should not be progressivism nor any other religion. Um, so with that, I'll move on to uh, a somewhat related topic, I guess, and that is our Department of Injustice. And I think there's a very telling line uh, early on from Merrick Garland with respect to the January 6th committee when he said essentially that he and his fellow prosecutors at DOJ would be avidly watching it as they engage in their own uh, January 6th jihad. Now, there's a remarkable contrast here, of course, between the screws being put to everyone and their mother via this committee, and then the DOJ that's effectively, it seems, working hand in hand with it, as Merrick Garland himself articulated, with then the utter silence, essentially, on the threats to life and limb of Supreme Court judges, the fact that the DOJ, of course, is not enforcing the law when it comes to those who are menacing judges in protesting outside their homes, trying to get them to potentially vote another way, the way that they want with respect to the Dobbs case. And then also, of course, the raft of threats, and many of which have been acted upon on pro-life individuals and entities. There was a recent report this week out showing there were some 40 plus attacks on pro-life individuals and entities, including firebombings and beyond, just since the leak of that draft Sam Alito opinion. And meanwhile, of course, on the other side of all this, Look at the leniency of the DOJ, of course, with respect to the summer 2020 rioters. And there have been a number of revelations here, a few cases briefly. One, infamously, there were two New York lawyers who threw a Molotov cocktail into an NYPD vehicle. Thank God there were no officers in that vehicle. Originally, they were facing terrorism charges and sentences of up to 30 years in prison. This DOJ recently allowed them to agree to a plea deal that walked down from a prior plea deal, which had only carried a max sentence of 10 years for possessing and making an explosive device, to a new charge of conspiring to assemble a Molotov cocktail and damage an NYPD car, which is likely to result in all of two years of jail time. So that's 30 years down to two years. One of the perpetrators here was accused of having a store of firebombs in his vehicle beyond the one that they threw into this NYPD vehicle. And he was videotaped attempting to hand them out to other rioters to cause more chaos. So this is justice, according to this Justice Department. Uh, another perp tried to ignite an NYPD vehicle by lighting a glove on fire and put it under that vehicle during these riots. He faced a mandatory minimum sentence of five years and a maximum of around 20 years for an arson charge. What happened? After nine months of deferred prosecution and anger management courses this perpetrator took, the, all charges were dropped by the Southern District of New York. One more case, or these follow several other cases, including dozens upon dozens of deferred prosecutions or outright dismissals of those charged with federal crimes with respect to the Portland summer 2020 riots, where of course a federal courthouse was under siege and attacked for weeks on end as well as one of the most odious cases of an individual who burnt down a Minneapolis pawn shop, killing a father of five, 
therein, yet was only charged with arson, was supposed to receive a sentence of around 20 years, and ended up getting 10 years at the urging again of this Justice Department, who invoked the words of Martin Luther King in talking about the fact that rioting is the language of the unheard. Also, of course, from a Department of Justice that it seems is protecting Joe Biden by going after those who dared to potentially try to obtain Ashley Biden's diary with all the sickening contents therein. And, and I think, so what is the main takeaway here? If progressives are being soft on crime in cities across the country, but at the highest levels, progressives are incredibly hard on thought crimes in this country. And I think there ought to be equal outrage applied to both. And the not so rhetorical question that I ask, as we see guilt or innocence essentially being predicated on identity or ideology today is, what's the Republican plan to deal with the fact we have no justice system anymore? Not maybe in, in effect, but in reality here. And how can anyone appeal to neutrality given the state of this system? Those aren't necessarily rhetorical questions. I'm open to your thoughts on any of these points and any proposed remedies. Do you see anyone out there saying or doing anything about it beyond tersely written letters to Attorney General Garland? So the illusion of neutrality, I think, is the natural place to start here. And this kind of ties into the broader concept, which obviously is a late motif on this podcast basically every week, of understanding what time it is in America. I actually was in New York City this past week. On Sunday night, I did a, um, a Tikva fund debate against uh, a, a very young kind of law student, really sharp writer by the, by the name of Tal Fortgang. And the, the, the resolution was resolved, use state power to promote the common good. Uh, you can obviously guess which side that I was on. But the idea here is that even if you don't necessarily agree that that is what an ideal state should look like, in the year 2022, given what we are up against right now, some sort of overshooting the mark at minimum is necessary to stabilize the equilibrium. This is actually kind of the crux of a recent Substack piece that Abigail Schreier wrote that I saw is up at the NatCon website that I think she titled In Defense of Political Escalation. So what that means, I think, in kind of concrete rule of law justice terms, kind of take it back to, to your point, Ben, is to do something that, you know, I, I tend to phrase this in provocative fashion, but I think the substantive point happens to be correct, which is rewarding friends and punishing enemies within the confines of the rule of law. If they are going to be selectively prosecuting people, if they're going to be selectively letting people off scot-free, then it is simply unsustainable for us in our, even in our own enclaves, in our own bastions here in Florida and Texas, elsewhere, to not do the same. Like some degree of reciprocal tit for tat at a bare minimum, I think simply has to be not just on the table, but actually utilized and operationalized. Even if, it's, even if that is not necessarily what is ideal in a, in a quote unquote liberal society at a bare minimum to try to stabilize and get us back to something remotely resembling the status quo. Yeah, I guess I, I, I might disagree slightly with Josh. I mean, it, this is one of the most fundamental things um, that, that brings stability uh, in, in any kind of democracy or republic is a belief in the rule of law. Um, and that that's eroding for very good reason, as Ben just laid out. I think he made some great comparisons and how the neutrality of the, the application, even of the criminal law, um, is, is eroding, which is, you know, I think it's one of the worst trends among many bad trends in America. I think it's one of the, one of the worst trends. The problem is once you lose the rule of law, it's not very easy to establish again. Um, and I guess that that's where I disagree uh, with Josh. I think that it's, it's you can't really, I, I agree with Abigail's piece um, very much that I think like we need to essentially reestablish uh, a kind of equilibrium. I just think that within the rule of law, that's, we should be using, we should be working, I guess the second half, I wanna em emphasize the second half of what you just said, which is within the rule of law. Um, once the, the, the prosecution becomes as politicized as it has been on the left, like a corresponding political prosecution on the right, I don't think will actually solve the problem. I think what it'll do is turn us into a banana republic where everybody comes out of power and gets prosecuted. And unfortunately, that's that's the direction um, where where we're headed. Um, but I, I don't know. I'd, I'd point to the Lyceum address again, right? Um, it's 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 what the, the worst things that will happen um, in in this republic if it can still be called a republic will be when the average law-abiding American loses complete faith with the rule of law. And just like with, for example, uh, racial resentment, this is a, a conflagration, I can't say that word, um, that the left is, has been playing with for a very long time. It's accelerating, playing with this very, very dangerous fire. Um, and, and 
yeah, I mean, I, I agree to the extent that I think that it were all headed in a very, very bad direction. I, I would say just in terms of practical reining in the, the DOJ, um, one thing that we should look at, and I don't see this as escalation in the sense that Josh is talking about, um, but, but unlike, for example, uh, courts themselves, uh, the DOJ is is a ultimately a political branch. Um, it, it is, you know, the, the people, the career uh, DOJ folks over there, they're supposed to be held to a standard of professionalism, but that doesn't mean they're held actually to a standard of political neutrality, which I agree with Josh is impossible. Um, so when, when Republican presidents come in, they need to be able to replace the staff of the DOJ. Um, and, and not to to and most of those careers are coming out of law schools that are extremely far left and they um, they hold to to basically the principles of the, the far left. Those folks should be fireable. They should be fireable and they need to become fireable and they need to be able to have a bench of actually, you know, people who can fill those positions who are not uh, beholden to the principles of the left. And with that, I'll kick it to Emily. Yeah, and that's such a, a long-term goal that the question is, again, the race against the clock dynamic, could that ever happen in the time um, that the DOJ doesn't give the average American um, you know, reason not to lose confidence in the, the rule of law? And that's going to be the problem moving forward. I mean, if you look at somebody like Merrick Garland, who in some senses is legitimately a moderate, let me finish, a moderate in the sense that he's, um, not, you know, this, this far left fringe activist, but even in this environment, somebody who, who you know, is, whose nomination was flirted with to the Supreme Court by Republicans who, who flirted with confirming it, um, somebody like Merrick Garland can't get or, or has to act like this, behave like this in this political environment because of political incentives and because of very real ideological shifts, um, then you know you're in trouble. Um, you know, you, you really, really know you're in trouble. And so until there are, those incentives are gone and that shift is, uh, you know, maybe moving into a different direction, the people who would staff the DOJ, the people who uh, at, at every level, so appointment level on down um, to careers, man, um, we're going to have a, a really hard time beating uh, the clock in in that race. So just a, a sort of dour note to end on, and I'll, I'll kick it over to back to Ben for any final thoughts on that. Yes, my final thought is I think we're already in the banana republic. We're in an abyss. Uh, what to turn the question back around on what ground should Americans have confidence that we still have a rule of law and on the Merrick Garland point I've been thinking about this lately, you know, on an absolute basis if you were to compare Merrick Garland to Eric Holder who is more radical, I think Merrick Garland probably comes out more radical and that to your point Emily is a function of the times but he's only a moderate in the sense of like a Menshevik versus Bolshevik continuum or the fact that uh, criminal charges haven't been leveled against Donald Trump yet, but there's still plenty of time. So, so stay tuned for that. And uh, on that note, I'll turn it back to Inez. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just uh, uh, answer Ben just once in one sentence, the jury system, the, the jury system is because it's connected to the American people and it is a small D democratic part of our, our court system. The jury system is actually quite I think has been quite encouraging in the face of politicized prosecution, for example. But um, moving on, we have uh, Title IX regs, and I know I've talked about these Title IX regs before, but that's because they are dropping, I think, on Thursday. That's the, the best information from the Department of Ed. Um, that, so it looks like these, these regulations will be dropping on Thursday. This show airs Friday, so if I'm right, you'll already know. Um, <laughs> but the, unfortunately, these are massive um, regulations that are going to affect uh, basically every school in America um, in, in very, very negative ways. There are three buckets of changes that these regulations make, each of them massive enough on their own um, to be well, well beyond the power of unelected bureaucrats who are making them. They ought to go through Congress, um, but they obviously are not. They're just doing this with a stroke of a pen. The first and most important is they're redefining sex, right? And and um, to to the drum that that Josh likes to to beat, um, Gorsuch had a large hand in this. Um, he is given the platform in talking about other parts of the Civil Rights Act. He has uh, given the language and the shape to uh, actually redefine sex in Title IX, and that means that every school that takes a dollar of federal money, which is nearly all of them from kindergarten all the way up through you know law schools and graduate schools, um, cannot 
distinguish between biological men and biological women, boys and girls. That means for sports teams, locker rooms, sororities and fraternities, right? Um, they, they cannot distinguish or recognize the biological distinction between men and women. That itself is incredibly sweeping. Um, there are two other major changes that are being made here, uh, both in contradiction to Supreme Court cases. Um, so one is the, the due process regulations that the Trump administration put in, which are just a duplication of what federal courts have already said. This is something that affects primarily young men on college campuses if they're accused of sexual misconduct. Um, under the Constitution, they are supposed to have a certain uh, standard of due process to make sure that they did, in fact, uh, commit the acts that they're being accused of. Um, colleges and universities have been wanting to circumvent those due process regulations and have been um, circumventing them, but this is going to make it official. It's gonna say, no, actually, you don't need to do, uh, you don't need to respect any modicum of due process on college campuses when you're accusing someone of sexual assault. So basically the Kavanaugh standard for, for all campuses. Um, and, and third, unfortunately, a lot of these, um, a lot of, of uh, these issues have secondary implications for freedom of speech. So um, there, there's a battle over pronouns. Now there's a school that's actually getting out ahead of these Title IX regulations and anticipating them, saying that they have opened a Title IX investigation into an eighth grader in Wisconsin for refusing to use they, them pronouns for his classmates. Um, so that's, that's the kind of thing we can look forward to, the eating into free speech on this issue. Um, and also the expansion of the definition of harassment and sexual harassment to include protected speech, like things that are very, very clearly protected speech, Supreme Court has said, uh, are protected speech and, and just in a common sense way, have absolutely nothing to do with sexual harassment. So like in this case, before this regulation from the Trump administration was in place, you had universities actually opening Title IX investigations into their professors for writing publicly available articles about sex roles or gender roles in, in American life. So you have Title IX investigations for harassment, for making general claims about men and women and how they interact in society. Uh, so these regulations obviously are, are massive. Um, they are coming. We will have a notice and comment period. This is the, the facsimile of the democratic process that we have now as the administrative um, under the administrative state, we have a notice and comment period. So um, I don't know, I'll kick it out to you. Do you think that this is going to be, um, do you think it's gonna be a factor in the midterms? Uh, what do you think about these, these regulations and how can we um, hope, have some hope to uh, fight, fight back against them? It won't be a factor in the midterms because the Republican party has no uh, idea that they need to be shouting from the rooftops that this is what Democrats are doing to college campuses and to K through 12 schools. So they're doing it um, from their perch at the Department of Education, um, similarly to how the Obama administration, in fact, uh, we wouldn't be here if the Obama administration hadn't done this via dear colleague letters um, to, twice, actually, I guess three times there were two, uh, and as you can connect me, correct me if I'm wrong, but there were two uh, campus rape uh, Title IX dear colleague letters, and then there was the third in 2016, which Camille Paglia sort of uh, wondered uh, whether that was, she said that's when she, she realized Hillary Clinton was going to lose the election, is when John King's dear colleague letter came down the Pike um, and basically read gender identity into on the basis of sex. Uh, Title IX, which is turning 50 this week, there will be all kinds of events um, with this, this very interesting coalition of many cases feminists, female athletes that are completely apolitical or uh, left-leaning, um, coming together with conservative groups who may have opposed Title IX, interestingly enough, over the years, um, but now recognizes that this is the settled sort of precedent and um, it's being used even worse as a, a weapon to mainstream further and to really hurt children at every grade level in every corner of the country um, via the vast administrative bureaucratic state. So it's immensely frustrating um, to, I think, parents and kids and to people like Inez and I who follow this really closely. I cut my teeth as a, an intern for Christina Hoff Summers um, uh, working on uh, a lot of these issues, especially during the, the days of the kangaroo courts, the Obama administration kangaroo courts, which were tragic and a disaster. Um, and just watching that unfold was like watching a, a 
car wreck on the highway for several years. It was just terrible um, watching it unfold in slow motion. So it feels like, you know, the wind is at everyone's back. Feminists have realized it. Uh, at the end of the Obama administration, Emily Yaffe had a great three-part series in The Atlantic about why this is bad. But here we are, moderate Joe Biden's administration is bringing it back, getting favorable media coverage. So I guess I'm not super hopeful. Right. So obliterating the most rudimentary distinction in the human species between the male and the female, I, I mean, just to call this like social transformation without representation, I think would be underselling the point. And I, I certainly hope that some measure, probably no small measure of civic resistance, if need be, will be the, the remedy to meet this outrageous, uh, just simply outrageous administrative ruling. I, I want to spend a moment talking about uh, what Inez properly called a hobby horse of mine, which is Justice Gorsuch and what he did in the Bostock case. I, I think what happened Bostock now viewed two years after the fact, now seeing what we have now seen is it's many things, but among other things, it is a cautionary tale in not giving our domestic enemies an inch when we know that they will take it a mile or 10 miles. So in the Bostock majority opinion, Justice Gorsuch purported to say, our holding today is strictly limited to the confines of Title VII, but of course, as so many other commentators noted immediately, the exact same logic naturally applies to Title IX. There was nothing whatsoever about the legal logic in Bostop that would have cabined it to Title VII other than Gorsuch's somewhat effete and limp recommendation that they do so. And the left has done this time and time again, going back to the same-sex marriage litigation, so the Windsor case of 2013, this is the case where Justice Kennedy strikes down the Defense of Marriage Act by saying that, that marriage is just an issue for the states. It's a federalism issue. Notwithstanding that, lower courts in, in the federal courts of appeal over the next year, year and a half, started willfully defying that guidance and saying that, oh, well, once you sneak in this language of crypto animus that Kennedy snuck into Windsor, therefore, it, it, there is a 14th Amendment substantive right. And that obviously led right to a Burgerfell. So it's a cautionary tale to just not give our domestic enemies an inch whatsoever. So holding a just the legal reasoning that went off off the rails there in Bostock, there was a lack of prudence as well, I think. So uh, briefly, I would say, I think that this issue illustrates the idea that our justice system really is being hollowed out in a million different ways, even if it's not our formal justice system when it comes to what transpires in universities. And of course, we all live on the campus today out in the real world, but the most uh, regressive and odious of uh, new developments, novel uh, inventions at the university level will almost assuredly filter into every other aspect of American life. I also think it's it's a point well taken uh, on Inez's part with respect to the free speech aspect of this. You know, it's worth noting there's been bandied about this new uh, disinformation governance board 2.0 to be headed by Kamala Harris, which deals with uh, gender-related speech and, of course, is going to be used to try to push big tech companies to do what they're already doing, which is censoring the likes of libs of TikTok and beyond those who engage in wrong think with respect to uh, radical, progressive gender-slash-sex ideology. Um, here, I think you're going to see, once again, speech that they do not like is going to be cast as harmful and violent and therefore meriting punishment at the campus level. And we're just going to see this, of course, ultimately evolve out into the real world as well. So uh, a development worth watching. But to Emily's point, of course, uh, our purported representatives in Washington probably won't have one iota of a thought about it. Uh, on that note, let's turn it back to Josh to talk about Joe Biden and Saudi Arabia. Okay, yeah, so a real curveball here, but it is a topic that's on my mind, so I wanted to do a, a segment on this. So when Joe Biden campaigned for the presidency in 2020, he referred to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia repeatedly as a quote-unquote pariah state. He even said that he would refuse to meet with Mohammed bin Salman, who is the reform-minded crown prince of Saudi Arabia. A lot of this goes back to the death of Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey in 2018. Hey, so I think it's worth just unpacking a lot of this, um, especially as we look forward to over the next few weeks, Joe Biden, uh, you know, assuming his health you know, stays the same, which is always a, a major caveat these days, that he's planning on taking a trip to the Middle East where I think he is going to visit Israel and Saudi Arabia, possibly other places I can't exactly recall. 
So this is viewed as kind of a as a big shift in policy from calling it a pariah state to then going to visit uh, Saudi Arabia, which, of course, is a major OPEC oil producing country right in the midst of four decade high gasoline prices. So to, I think it's worth unpacking, especially kind of the Khashoggi information operation part of this story. So I think over the past six months, actually, really, or maybe over the past few months, I think Washington, D.C. named the street outside the Saudi embassy in D.C., Jamal Khashoggi Way. Um, so, uh, I, I mean, I see, I, I see, I see Ben, who, who I assume is going to want to jump in right after me here, because my my brain just wants to explode here. So let's just go back to the, and revisit exactly who Jamal Khashoggi is. So Jamal Khashoggi was born in Saudi Arabia. He was very friendly with with the Wahhabists, with the Salafist regime there, kind of the pre-reform era, back when the Saudis were the were the singular preeminent funders of of, of Sunni jihad around the world. He was actually he he palled around with Osama bin Laden back when Osama bin Laden was was leading the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviet aggressors in the 1980s. He, he even followed bin Laden. He slept around in his cave. Even after bin Laden took a turn, I, I guess you would say for the worst, not that he was ever a good guy, but when he started like actively embracing Al Qaeda and bombing the World Trade Center in 93, after then, even after bin Laden was killed. In May 2011, Jamal Khashoggi actually released a statement saying that he wept for Abu Abdullah, which I think was his was his war name. Jamal Khashoggi ended up being he ended up leaving the Saudi sphere of influence, cozying up to the Qatari regime. Qatar is a very very small country there in the Middle East. It's one of the Saudis and the Emiratis arch rivals. Qatar though plays way above its its weight, so to speak, as far as Washington D.C. is concerned. They have a sprawling information operation system in place. The Brookings Institution is ground zero for this. In Doha, Qatar, actually, they have an entire campus, Brookings does. Um, recently, of course, the former, uh, now former president of Brookings, John Allen, it was just disclosed that he was lobbying on behalf of the Qatari government without properly filling out his FARA paperwork. Apparently, the Justice Department, speaking of Merrick Garland, one of Ben's favorite talking points, Merrick Garland apparently tried to hide this, this, this disclosure, did not want it to get out there. Qatar basically took under Jamal Khashoggi, and they basically paid him to write these op-eds for the Washington Post. Jamal Khashoggi, by the way, cannot speak a word of English. Um, so uh, th th there's, there's a lot to unpack here, but I guess I, the way I want to kind of tie this all together is I think it is actually worth praising Joe Biden, something that we do not often do for going forward and actually trying to reach some sort of rapprochement with Saudi Arabia. So the Saudis obviously tacitly signed off on the Abraham Accords agreements between Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain. Saudi Arabia is by far the most important uh, Sunni Muslim country in the world for obvious geographic, historical, and, and religious issues pertaining to Islam. Without the Saudis' tacit approval, the Emiratis or Bahrainis never in a million years could have gotten away with that. To this day, the Saudis are closely working actually with the Israelis, or at least as closely as they ever have been on military and intelligence related issues, which, oh, by the way, is taking on even heightened importance these days as Iran inches ever closer to the nuke. And there's really no country in the world other than Israel that hates Iran quite like the Saudis do. So good for Joe Biden for visiting Saudi Arabia, for trying to put the Jamal Khashoggi Qatari Washington Post information operation in the rearview mirror. I guess I'll toss it over to Ben first because this is this topic's right in his wheelhouse. Ben, I, what I'd be curious for your take on actually is more of the John Allen Qatar Brookings Institution FARA element of it and why you think the Justice Department tried to bury that. Hmm. Uh, I'd have to have to think a little bit about that, but I think the the broader context here that's important is that Jamal Khashoggi, yes, the immediate term kind of initial knee-jerk response to this is, uh, yeah, it's obviously they were so disingenuous about their hatred of the Saudi regime, about MBS, because then when they actually need them, of course, they go hat in hand back to them, uh, begging for oil, which shows you that their proclamations about you know, love of human rights and the like are a joke, which we, of course, knew was a joke all along because this is an administration that wants to go back to uh, an Iran deal 2.0, which with an equal, equally, if not significantly more regressive regime and does business with all manner of regressive regimes around the world. So that's a farce, obviously. But Khashoggi himself is an important figure. And, and this ties into uh, Qatar and the fact that essentially the Muslim Brotherhood or Muslim Brotherhood linked regimes uh, have owned Washington really for a long time. Khashoggi himself, one of the reasons that there was such an intense backlash after Khashoggi's apparent assassination. And I wrote about this in The Federalist back in 2018. I'd refer people to it. 
article is called Why is Khashoggi Being Made the Defining Issue of U.S. Foreign Policy? is because Khashoggi, in a sense, personified the exact national security and foreign policy that our establishment loved, which is wanting to incorporate the Muslim Brotherhood and into our policies and elevate the Muslim Brotherhood in the Islamic world, as well as an aiding, abetting, and enabling uh, Iran as the preeminent Shia force in the region. But essentially, it was promotion of Islamist forces throughout the region was certainly officially the Obama-Biden administration's policy. And Khashoggi represented that almost singularly. Khashoggi's falling out with the Saudi regime in part was because it was no longer, uh, uh, certainly under MBS, a pro-Islamist regime. Obviously, this is all in shades of gray here when you're talking about any one of these regimes. But Khashoggi was used as a cudgel to attack the Trump administration in part as a backlash against its counter-Iran policy, which involved helping build up a U.S.-Israeli-Sunni-Arab regime alliance as a bulwark against Iran, which, by the way, would allow the U.S. to extricate itself from all manner of disasters within that region. So the attempt was to use Khashoggi to undermine that entire counter-Iranian plan. And in that counter-Iranian plan, you have to look at Iran's allies as well, led by Sunni Islamist forces, despite the fact that many will claim that there are no ties between Sunni and Shia Islamists, that is ultimately all wrapped up in, embodied in, personified in the information op to use Khashoggi as a cudgel against Trump and to try to destroy the burgeoning U.S.-Saudi relationship that transpired uh, during those past four years. So as with respect to uh, John Allen, Qatar, Farah, and the like, it's, it's, unclear necessarily who's playing what angle here. But what I would say is that it is illustrative of the fact that our many think tanks in Washington, D.C. and beyond have, of course, been compromised by all manner of powers, uh, which the Islamists have used to great effect over the many years. Well, I was just going to add that. Um, I don't I don't have much to add to what both of you said, except for that. Um, it's incredible what degree uh, the proxy war has taken um, with money pouring into Washington, D.C., that the head of the Brookings Institute, it, it, the reporting on this, I think it was first in the New York Times, is really incredible. Um, the the documents that were filed uh, alleging that he, he basically did not properly uh, report the work under Pharaoh, which has entangled a lot of top people in Washington um, over the last few years. It was not usually enforced until, of course, they decided they wanted to uh, go after sort of Trump folks uh, for Pharaoh violations. And then other people have gotten caught up in that dragnet, people on the left, um, like this this gentleman uh, who is now no longer the head of the Brookings Institute. But it's, it's remarkable how many major institutions are completely compromised to use Ben's word bought and paid for um, by foreign interests. And the conversation with Farah is often, um, you know, people need transparency, right? Like this, the point of Farah is not to outlaw foreign lobbying, foreign influence, uh, but to increase transparency. I think there actually might be a, a conversation to be had um, about whether it should be legal to take this money and do this lobbying work. Yeah, just uh, two brief points before we wrap up. Uh, one, of course, the obvious point is that this shows the limitations uh, of the foreign policy blob. Um, the fact that there really was a type of, of new Middle East emerging under Trump with the Abraham Accords, right? Um, that, that, that was supposed to be impossible, right? We had to solve the Israeli-Palestinian problem before anything could happen in the Middle East. Everybody, quote unquote, knew that working for the State Department or elsewhere. Uh, that turned out to be complete bunk. Uh, and I think that that has been the theme with so many of our elites, right? Um, and the decisions they've made in the last 30 years. Two, um, this is an obvious point, but it just has to be said during this segment. If, if the left were serious about not being dependent on regimes they despise, whether that's Saudi Arabia or Russia, um, they would be much friendlier to domestic production of American energy and American independent, uh, energy independence. So um, an obvious point, but nevertheless, a, a point that needs to be made every time we're talking about these, these things. Uh, but with that, let's move on. Yeah, so we're now at parting shots. Uh, if anyone wants to jump in, I'll be brief in my remarks because I filibustered a little bit there. It just happens when Khashoggi comes up. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, I mean, I'll hop in on the, on the previous segment as well. So just to 
about Saudi Arabia, more generally speaking. So obviously, this is not a bastion of human rights, to put it mildly. But I have to say that I find the argument against warmer U.S.-Saudi relations, especially at this moment, to be utterly baffling. I, I was actually out in Arizona in February. I was, uh, I'd say, half debating, half just discussing Middle East stuff with Doug Bandow of Cato. And the, the issue we probably disagreed on the most was actually the Saudi issue. And he kept on saying over and over again how like the worst human rights abusers, the war in Yemen, obviously ignoring the role that the Iran-funded Houthi rebels play in that conflict. And my point over and over again was, you know, isn't the day and age where neoliberals and neoconservatives kind of view foreign policy through a moralistic prism, aren't those days over? Like, isn't, is, isn't this moment entirely about realpolitik and foreign policy predicated upon transactional relationships and who hates our enemies and who likes our friends? Well, the Saudis happen to meet that description pretty well. So I have no particular moralistic love for, for an Islamic caliphate like Saudi Arabia, obviously, but I view them as an extremely important ally. And I really do think Biden deserves a lot of credit, actually, for kind of getting over his misguided pariah statements in the campaign and actually going to Riyadh next month. Super quick, I just want to really kind of follow up from my segment last week on the Senate gun bill, which is, um, you know, which has now passed the Senate with 14 Republican co-conspirators, you might say. Um, a, a lot of these names, as we talked about last week, are names that are retiring, people like Pat Toomey. A lot of them are, the, are predictable names, people like Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski. As a former Texan and someone who is very familiar and well, you know, in there with kind of the Texas grassroots, I, I just have to say, like, kind of on behalf of my friends in Texas, John, John Cornyn just absolutely has to go. Um, Texas is is an iconic red state and is an iconic conservative state. For John Cornyn to, I think, be the leading Republican negotiator on this bill, he obviously was booed vociferously at the Texas GOP convention recently. I thought that was uh, that that was much deserved, but I sincerely hope that he has an effective primary challenger come 2026, because one of the problems in the past is that he just hasn't had that, that many well-qualified primary challengers, but hopefully next time. I've never really been able to get over what happens, what happened under the Obama administration with Title IX. Um, it just, since I started working on it, that those issues in college, it was really stunning for me to see, uh, just as, as an intern to follow the story. I, I, it, it felt like a really early preview, not really early, but in, in a preview of what was to come um, during the Trump years that the country was on two different levels. One had almost like completely seceded and decided to have a new justice system, basically, um, that was predicated on this sort of moral relativistic postmodern um, conception of truth and justice. And it's amazing really um, that the, the moderation and normalcy that Joe Biden pledged, um, it's not even, nobody is even talking about that in this context. Um, something that's going to affect just about every single school, uh, a huge chunk of children, every single institution of higher education, except for like Hillsdale, um, this is it's amazing um and it's so radical and you know it doesn't tie in i guess super neatly with the proxy war that we talked about between Qatar and the saudis and dc and, and other countries as well um but it, it is just such an example of how divorced um what happens in washington and the conversation on a daily basis is from what the american people actually want and what their priorities are and should be. Um, it's, I mean, I think Washington's always been like that to some degree, but uh, thinking about all of this, as we've just discussed uh, these, these different topics, it just, it, that's my, that's sort of my final thought in a very literal sense um, to, to sort of review the conversation. Yeah, I, I just wanna pick up on that, Emily. I have similar thoughts. Um, well, why is a return to normalcy increasingly fundamentally further and further far left culturally? Um, well, we know the answer to that. It's the domination of the institutions. But a lot of the things that we have been talking about today, right, um, up and in, including the, the sort of, uh, I wouldn't even call it a debate, but like a, a tension between me and Josh over the and, and Ben over the, the justice system, right? Why are we dealing with questions like this at all? Um, it's because we allowed 
uh, well, two things. One, we allowed, of course, the left to dominate the education system, um, first from the academy all the way into K-12, and those those graduates have gone everywhere, right? Like kind of like a metastasizing, right? They have gone into every single institution, and that's why we see everything from, you know, newspapers to the DOJ um, experiencing a lot of the same sort of campus dynamics, right? Um, and but but there's there's another another point um, or another structural part of this right which is um, not only because the academy has always been left for whatever the politics of, the, of America uh, were at the time and obviously you know God and man at Yale is complaining about universities being to the left of, of, of the American people a large part of this also has to do with the structure of the managerial revolution right we have so many more choke points in today's society for credentialers for people um, who, who have connections to the academy, right? Almost every sort of powerful institution now has um, sort of gatekeeping credentials that we have turned the keys over at those cho choke points, right? Um, to essentially first the academy and then everywhere else. And so I think that's, that's a large part that's important to think about that. When we think about how to push back on any of this, that the academy really is sort of the, the beating heart of this and, and getting rid of not only um, not only like actually directly sort of putting in place policies to to um, lessen and damage the university sector, but also thinking about how in every every point along the way we can lessen the power of institutional gatekeepers and credentialism more generally. I think that that's the strategic uh, thinking um, that the right should be engaging in right now because that's really the battle. And it's going to look different in different sectors, right? There's no like sort of direct line between that strategy and, and a particular policy in every single sector. It's going to look different depending on how captured they are. Some credentialing you need, right? I want my, my surgeon to be credentialed, right? Um, but generally, I think we, we need to look at the role of how powerful credentialing and gatekeeping has transformed all of these institutions and given power to exactly the, the sort of beating heart of the cultural left. So I was uh, a little bit flipped before and talking about the fact that we're already in the banana republic abyss, but just narrowly on the point about due process, I'll use my kind of executive privilege here to make the final point on this. All I could think about as Inez was talking about that was Michael Sussman's jury. And obviously that's a unique one because you're talking about in Washington, D.C., truly a jury of his peers. But I mean, there are other aspects of this where you have to call into question due process as well. You have a January, you have the DOJ taking notes from the January 6th committee, which is the opposite of a due process committee. It's entirely one-sided and non-adversarial. In fact, it's quite collegial because everyone staffing it is on the same side and they want to put the screws to their political opponents. And that's who Merrick Garland is taking his notes from. And then just a, another point on this is like the Chauvin jury, for example, was under intense pressure, scrutiny, intimidation to the extent it had ruled wrong. So do we really have a true kind of ideal jury system. And now look, always and everywhere in our history, there have been issues like these, but I think this, the nature and the extent of it today is something new. And that does to get to the question of what do you do when faced with this sort of system? And it does go back to your point and as to the fact that we have people who have been indoctrinated into an ideology that is antithetical to all of these kinds of bedrock institutions, norms, principles that our system is based on. So you can have the best system with uh, the, the most narrowly tailored and perfectly written laws. And it doesn't matter if you don't have people to keep them, obviously. And, and that gets me to the point of, to Josh's point, practically, we do need to think about what kind of pressure points can you push on the other side that would cause them to change their behavior consistent with the law. But then even if you could fire every single administrative stater tomorrow, would we have people to staff those agencies that would still exist at the end of the day? And that points to a, a broader problem, practical problem that we have as we try to deal with these more philosophical and high-minded ones here. But in any event, on that note, on behalf of Josh, Emily, and Inez, thanks for tuning in. I'm Ben Weingarten. We'll catch you with the next NatCon Squad.